Heinemann Podcast is a production of Heinemann Publishing. Heinemann is a provider of resources written by real teachers for real classrooms. Heinemann values teachers as decision makers and students as curious learners. Discover the path to lifelong professional learning at Heinemann.com. Heinemann is dedicated to teachers. I'm Brett from Heinemann. Today on a very special podcast, Heinemann author and lead staff developer with the Teachers College Reading and Writing Project, Cornelius Miner, sits down to interview New York Times best-selling author Kwame Alexander. In a wide-ranging conversation, Cornelius asks Kwame about his first teachers, the people who prepared him for the work he does today, and how he connects students to poetry. Kwame Alexander is a poet, educator, and the New York Times best-selling author of 28 books, including Swing, Solo, and Rebound, the follow-up to his Newbery Medal-winning middle-grade novel, The Crossover. Kwame's newest book, The Right Thing, is available now. Kwame is also the forward author on Cornelius Miner's forthcoming Heinemann book, We Got This, Equity, Access, and the Quest to Be Who Our Students Need Us to Be, due out this fall. Here now is Cornelius Miner and Kwame Alexander. Well, welcome, 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 Kwame Alexander, here with us on the Heinemann Podcast. Um, my name is Cornelius Miner, and um, I have absolutely just been in love with everything that you have done. And there are very few artists that I can say that about. You know, it's one thing to know your work in your books, but for me as an educator, I have seen the impact of your work on children. So you can't start off the podcast saying that, man. <laughs> now I'm all like, wow. I mean, the thing about it is, first of all, I appreciate you having me here. I've listened to the Heinemann podcast. I've listened to you. I've known you for a while. And when you, you know, share those kind of accolades with someone, when you share that kind of praise, what it does for me is it makes me realize I got to be accountable. Like I got to be responsible for what I'm saying, for what I'm doing, because there are people out here in the world who value it. And so that's important. That's crucial. So, so thanks for putting that pressure on me. <laughs> but, you know, but I think, I think the thing about your accountability is – you seem to live the kind of life where accountability isn't the kind of thing that you do, it's the kind of person that you are. And I guess my first question stems from that. You know, I, I wrestle a lot with history and I'm always trying to make history make sense, you know, with right now, especially right now, when some of the most vulnerable people on the planet are children. And Frederick Douglass has a quote that says, you know, it is easier to build strong children than to repair broken men. And when I look at your work, it is clear that the poet that you are, the generous educator that you are, that you are a strong child who has become this strong artist. And, and so that tells me that there is something intentional that someone did with you to make you who you are right now. And when I think about the teachers listening to this podcast, I would love to hear you talk about what were the things that the adults in your life did with the child that was Kwame Alexander that made you who you are right now? I mean, thank you for that. And thank you for for giving me the space to talk about the people, that tribe, the community, because yeah. that's so important. Mm -hmm. And we get so caught up sometimes, or I do, in talking about the work I'm doing. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's the people around me who've made it possible. So it's gotta go back to family, man. Yeah. It's gotta go back to my grandparents. My grandparents were my first teachers. My parents were my first teachers. They were my first librarians, okay? We can talk about sort of the formal education in a minute, but my grandparents and my parents created this space where A, you're black. B, you can do anything you wanna do in this world, okay? C, because you can do anything in this world, you gotta be prepared 
in the things that you're going to do. So we have to, we have to prepare you for that work. D, there are going to be people in this world who are going to try to say no to you. Okay? You can listen, you can learn, but ultimately you are in charge of saying yes to yourself. And so we're going to create this confidence in you that allows you to move through this world and be who you need to be and do what you want to do, regardless of whatever else is going on. Now, you're going to face challenges, but we're going to give you that confidence. And E, I think is probably the most important thing, Cornelius, is because of this responsibility or because of these things that you're going to be doing in this world and that we're preparing you to do, you got to be accountable for it. You got to be responsible for it. You got to take it seriously, you know? And so, you know, that came in a variety of ways. It came in my parents immersing my sisters and I in books and literature from a very early age and sort of understanding the power of words and how to use your words. And it came <laughs> from something like understanding that accountability that we're and the praise that we're heaping on you and, and what we expect from you, the expectations, and not adhering to that. And so now there are repercussions. Mm -hmm. And so as a seven-year-old, maybe that repercussion was from my grandmother, go outside and cut a switch off the tree, mm -hmm. cut a branch <laughs> off the tree. Days. I don't know if we can talk <laughs> about, like, you know, getting yeah. spankings, because yeah. today it's a whole different thing. Yeah. But growing up in Chesapeake, Virginia, my grandmother said, get your own switch. And then she's, you know, slapping me across the leg with it. You know, and me standing there and taking it like they're going to be repercussions and you got to be prepared for it. Yeah. That's that's a really a simple way of looking at it. But mm -hmm. those kind of things stuck with me mm -hmm. from a more formal education. Yeah, I had teachers like Miss Virgil in first grade who, you know, said if we read 100 books, we got a T-shirt that said you read 100 books. And I wanted that white T-shirt with red letters. So I read 100 books in like two weeks. I was the first one to finish. <laughs> you know, she found she knew what yeah. it was, what I needed. Mm -hmm. And for me, I wanted a T-shirt. I wanted the t-shirt, whatever it was. And so the t-shirt was a metaphor. And so I read 100 books, and I was excited and engaged and empowered. Mm -hmm. Or my 12th grade teacher, Miss Morgan, who asked me to write a paper on any book that we had read. And I wrote a paper on Things Fall Apart, and she gave me an F. And she gave me an F, Cornelius, because she said the paper was too good, and it was almost as if a college person had written it, and there's no way I could have done it. And so you've got this one teacher, Ms. Virgil, who's empowering me. And you've got this other teacher, Ms. Morgan, who's destroying. Mm -hmm. Teachers can do both. That accountability. What kind mm -hmm. of student are you going to sort of, you know, raise in your home, in your classroom home? Mm -hmm. And I think teachers can empower or they can destroy kids. And so. Yeah. And I mean, that's so right. You know, one of the things that I hear a lot in the teaching world is people say, well, I have to engage in this destructive practice in my classroom because this destructive practice is gonna meet them in college or the world is harsh. And I've always said that, you know, we don't prepare kids for harsh realities beyond our classrooms by inviting those harsh realities into our classrooms, that we can keep kids safe while building bridges over those harsh realities. And so that's like big stuff. Yeah, it reminds me of, you know, sort of this idea of how do you prepare children to go out and face the world mm -hmm. and there's got to be some some wit some wisdom there's got to be some intelligence it can't just like you said you can't just invite that sort of harshness into the classroom as a way to do it mm -hmm. 
I mean, my father, when I, when I decided I wanted to be a poet and wanted to start my own publishing company, it was right after college back in 1991, and I had studied with Nikki Giovanni, and I felt like I was the guy to do this. And my father, who owned a publishing company, said, it's never going to work. You're not going to make any money. Why are you even thinking like this? And he was upset. And I was like, you're a publisher. I want to publish. I'm going in. I'm following your footsteps. Mm-hmm. You know, and you don't want me to publish poetry? It's never going to work. And he was like, bam, bam, bam. And I was like, okay, well. And I was, I was living in the area in Chesapeake, Virginia. I was working for his publishing company. And I, at that moment, I was like, dude, I, I love you, but I can't work for you anymore. And I, I resigned from my father. <laughs> How do you resign from your father? I resigned, and, and I said, I'm starting my own company. If we can't publish poetry with you, then I'm going to start my own company. And uh, I remember, man, like it was yesterday, I wa- I, we was married. We packed up the bags. We were leaving to move to D.C. area. And he gave me a check for $1,700. And I was like, what's this for? And he said, it's for you to do what you need to do and I took the money and I printed my first thousand books with it for my company and that began a 26 year career in writing and publishing and I I talked to him about it like recently and I was like dad you never believed the poetry thing was going to work out (laughs) you weren't a supporter and he was like where'd you get the money from wow to start it (laughs) he was like I knew you could do it. I needed to let you, I, need, I needed to sort of be a barrier while at the same time being encouraging. Mm-hmm. You know, I needed to show you the harsh realities of this world because no poets, poets don't make money unless you're Maya Angelou or Billy Collins. Mm-hmm. You, it's just real. Yeah. And so he, he said, I wanted to show you, I wanted to, to really make sure you knew that. And at the same time, I believe that you can do it. And so this was going to be, I was going to put my money where my mouth is. And so it's so funny, man, because when I won the Newbery Medal, he was the first call I made. And I said, Dad, I won the Newbery. And he said, yeah, we did it. <laughs> I think there's ways you can prepare your children for the world that's, that's instructive, inspiring, and ultimately empowering for them. Because yes. you want them to face it and succeed. Uh-huh. That's the goal. Yeah. You don't want them to be like challenged and not be, and not be able to bounce back mm-hmm. and not be able to rebound. Wow. That is powerful. That's powerful. And, you know, and I think about you now, you know, so I'm going from that $1,700 check to now, you know, again, I don't want to. Which he wants back. Yeah, I'm sure. He keeps telling me, (laughs) when am I getting my royalties? (laughs) I'm sure. I am sure. You know, and um, I I talk to so many children, you know, and I'm in classrooms all the time. And and one great luxury is I get to read your books with kids. And they're going to beat me up if I go back to Brooklyn and don't ask you some questions right, <laughs> about right. these books. Um, but I want to kind of connect it to your situation with your dad, you know, in that um, the most beautiful experience that I had in the classroom this year, I worked with a, a teacher named Miss Onstad in her sixth grade room and we read solo together and um, the kids elected the book. So we had a huge vote. Books got voted off the island. Solo survived. So, um, and so, yeah. so, so we, we read solo together and they had beef with Rutherford, man. They had a huge, they had a time with Rutherford. And what's interesting is I had to really talk to them about the concept of a rock star. And in many ways, you know, you are a rock star and, you know, and I think about that $1,700 check and I think about you now. And the thing about a rock star is 
we want the rock star to be on rock star levels at all times. So, you know, for Rutherford, we wanted Rutherford to be that front man for the band the whole time. But it was really hard for the fans to accept the complexities of Rutherford. You know, they want the rock star, but they don't want the complexity that comes with it. You know, and with you, we've got a bona fide poet rock star, but there's something where you've been able to communicate to people the complexity of being Kwame. And I would love to know how have people on your path nurtured the rock star while loving the complexity? I don't know if I like being in the same sentence with Rutherford. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if I like that, Cornelius. But no, you're right. You're right. Because it's it's complex. It's conflicting. It's, you know, it's... I don't even know if I'm answering the question, but Mm -hmm. I'll share this. Uh You and I both share this belief that family is first Mm -hmm. this work we're doing is the work is always going to be here Mm -hmm. the family is first and so i've been touring i've been traveling you know i've been out trying to change the world you know one word at a time and i always try to make sure that i bring my family with me as much as possible we're going to ghana for a week and so you and I are here at the International Literacy Association, mm-hmm. which is this date has been booked for a couple of years and you know, I've known about it for a year or so. And when I booked it, I knew that my daughter had a play. She's into Broadway, she's in the theater, she's acting, she's nine years old. And she thinks she's the next, you know, Viola Davis. Love it. And she's good. Mm-hmm. I saw her in Aladdin in April. I was in the middle of a book tour and I arranged a book tour so I could come home for those two days mm-hmm. and do the, uh, and, and come go see her on opening night. And she was stunning. So I knew that she had a big event, Lion King. And when it was originally scheduled, Lion King was going to be on Friday, the 20th. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, cool. So I told all of my publishers, I'll be at ILA on the 21st. I will not be there on the 20th. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I love my work, mm-hmm. but I don't love my work more than I love my family. Or So, yeah. Mm-hmm. A month ago, the play, her theater company called and said, we've changed the date. The play will now be on the 21st. And, of course, there are four events, four opportunities for me to interact with teachers. Four opportunities for me to share my passion for this work four opportunities for me to change the world one word at a time this thing that i love do i call four publishers and tell them i can't be there and of course that's my thing that's what i'm gonna do and my daughter says dad i'll ask the director if you can come to the technical rehearsal on friday and just see it So I get to the technical rehearsal on Friday and they're not having it. They're just going to do a choreography or walk through. So she looks at me and she says, dad, it's okay. We'll, we'll be in Ghana next week together. You go, you can see the DVD. That was sort of devastating and, <coughs> and ultimately empowering in so many ways and I think man we we were just talking about community it was hard not to be there yesterday mm. 
and you can't make a habit out of that. But how important is it to have people around you who understand the work that you're doing, your children, your family? I think I'm able to do this because they allow me to do it. Right. It's as simple <coughs> as that. Yeah. They allow me to do it. And you've got to surround yourself with people who understand and value the work that you're doing as much or even more than you do. Mm-hmm. Else it can't work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't even know if I answered the question. No, but I mean, but you got it. Like, even when I think about students, you know, I have to understand their passion. I have to understand their mission. And if I don't allow them to be who they are, it doesn't work for them either. That's really, really, that's huge. I mean, to me, that feels like everything. That, that your daughter is saying, Daddy, I see you, and I'm going to let you be you because I trust that you won't make a habit of this. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it's a fine line yeah. that you got to walk. It's a fine line. I do remember, you know, my father not being there, mm-hmm. you know, and not to put him on blast, but. I don't remember him asking. <laughs> we didn't wow. have that kind of relationship. Wow. He's like, I'm out here in these streets. I'm I'm selling books. I'm speaking. I'm doing this for y'all. Yeah. So it's it's definitely a fine line. Yeah. But you know, and that's the benefit of you know when I think about aspects of class and of race. You know, you and I are the beneficiaries of our parents who broke several color lines. Yep you know, to establish intergenerational wealth, which other people have had for centuries, right. you know? And so in many ways, we are the first black folks that were allowed to inherit the things that our parents built. And so, and one of the things that we inherit is the luxury to communicate with our kids. Um, we inherit the luxury of time, you know, like, you know, right. that, you know, I think about my mom and dad, my dad didn't have that luxury either. He had to go hustle all the time, you know? And so that I get to say to my daughter, I have to go hustle today, but I don't have to hustle tomorrow is a direct result of what my father did a generation ago. Um, and that's, that's huge. It is. Yeah, that's, that's massive. And so connecting to that, thinking about paying things forward, I'm just in love with the idea that so many kids look at poetry now as a thing that they can do. Right. And, you know, and it's not the stuff that I got to wait for my college professor to give me permission to do, but it's a thing that I can do. Um, what would be your top three? If you could give just top three tips to kids or to teachers for teaching, for writing poetry, what would be your top three for the kid, for the teacher that's listening to this? You mean aside from make sure they have a copy of the crossover and rebound? <laughs> that's two right there. There it is. Um, I've always felt like, the reason why kids haven't necessarily embraced poetry um, is because the teachers are afraid of it. And the teachers are afraid of it because at some point in our education, our formal education, our teachers were afraid of it. Mm-hmm. Like I think mm-hmm. when you look back at verse and rhyme and rhythm and figurative language in kindergarten and first grade and second grade, it's there. Yeah. It's how we learn. It's how mm-hmm. we, you know, we're enjoying it. It's, mm-hmm. it's Dr. Seuss. It's, and I think, you know, something happens when we try to go from that to Shakespeare in ninth and 10th grade. Like, that's a huge leap mm-hmm. for anybody. Yeah. How do you make that leap? And, mm-hmm. and so I think that I wasn't necessarily doing anything different mm-hmm. than 
what maybe a Nikki Giovanni or a Langston Hughes or even an E.E. Cummings. I just believe that I tried to intentionally create this text that would serve as a bridge to help kids get over, you know, to an appreciation of literature. And that was through storytelling. It was through the use of visual poetry. It was, it was borrowing these things that I had learned from reading these other poets and sort of synthesizing them into this text that kids would be able to say, oh, yeah, but even more so, teachers would be able to say, oh, wow, yeah, my kids are loving this. Like, I think the reason the crossover really took off was not necessarily because of the librarians and the teachers at first. Because, it, I mean, most of the librarians and teachers, when they saw a guy playing basketball on the cover, they sort of, okay. Yeah, I was there. I was, I was ground zero. At right. The like, I remember right. the first time I touched that book. And, I, and, and what was interesting is a kid put me onto it. That's what I was going to say. I think yeah. <laughs> the reason it took off is because the kids embraced it. And they said, yeah. oh, wow. You know, yeah. In particular, the boys. This is a book about basketball. Let me try it. And once they got into it, they were like, oh, wow, this connects. I'm interested. I'm yeah. excited. And then the teachers and the librarians saw that the kids, in particular the boys, and they yeah. were like, what are these boys into? I think the kids are really responsible for that book taking off. Oh, 100%. I remember the, <laughs> I remember the moment. Like, There's a reference to a Jordan toothbrush in the crossover. And the kids was like, yo, it exists? And so they were in the back of my classroom on eBay because, like you said, that <laughs> right, you said right. that he got the toothbrush off on eBay. eBay. So they were in the back of their classrooms, my classroom, huddled around on the cell phone looking for the Jordan toothbrush That's on hilarious. eBay. It didn't exist, or at least they couldn't find it. Right, they couldn't find it, and so they're yelling at each other, and I have to go back there to break it up. And I'm like, "What are y'all fighting about?" And they were like, "He said that it's a Jordan toothbrush on eBay, but we can't find it." And like, <laughs> and and um, and I'm like, "Who said?" Right. And they're like, Kwame said. And I'm like, ain't no Kwame in this class. <laughs> <laughs> and they had your book. And it was just really cool because to me, that's close reading. They had read your book so closely that they were looking for the one detail that, you know, they they had experienced every other detail in that book in life. Right. But they had not experienced that toothbrush and they needed that toothbrush. Right. Yeah. And I just thought that that was I was like, all right, whatever this dude is doing, whoever Kwame is. Right. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, that was uh that was me trying to write a book that I would have wanted to have read when I was 12. Yeah. You know, that's what that was. That was me really trying to incorporate all the things I'd learned in poetry um over the years, being accessible, telling an interesting story, mm -hmm. writing about the things that I love, using different forms, making the words dance on the page, being concise. Mm -hmm. Um, using rhythm, using a lot of figurative language, yeah. um, being in inspired by hip hop and jazz on the page. Yeah. It was doing all the things that I I had loved mm -hmm. as a kid, as an adult as well. Yeah. And having visited so many schools, yeah. knowing that kids, this is what kids, this is how kids relate. This is how they connect. Yeah. And this is going to work. I knew yeah. it intimately. I felt it. I oh, believed yeah. it. Oh, yeah. And what does it mean to you just that so many black kids came to life? when your words hit their desk? Uh, what does it mean? I mean, it, me it, it meant a lot. Yeah. I mean, I mean, the, the answer is in the question. Yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah it was, I mean, just because witnessing that phenomenon as right. a teacher, again, they were in the back of my room arguing about details in a book. Right. Like arguing, like serious barbershop banter. 
in the English class. Like, and, <laughs> and I had never seen anything like right. that before. You know, and I've always prided myself on having, like, the flyest books, you know. And, and so when the kids had the fly books and I ain't know about it, that was almost offensive to me. I was like, how you know Kwame and I don't know Kwame. Right. <laughs> like, right. So, yeah. You know, the deal is, man, I am, um, we've grown up in a world where people, you know, say that boys don't read. Mm-hmm. Boys don't like to read in general. And in particular, black boys don't read. Mm-hmm. You, know, you know, I've heard it from parents from teachers, from kids. Mm. And I just, the way I grew up, man, Mm -hmm. again, my parents sort of instilled, and my grandparents instilled in me this thing that, A, you're black. Mm -hmm. B, now what? Now what you gonna do with it? Right? And so I never believed that black boys don't want to read. I never grew up believing that. I grew up hearing that, oh, Kwame's reluctant, or Kwame doesn't want to read, or, you know, seeing my friends who got the same sort of thing. But my position was, I was well-read, man. Mm -hmm. I was well-read having grown up in my parents' home, so it wasn't that I didn't want to read. Nobody was giving me anything that I wanted to read. Mm -hmm. Nobody was making the words jump off the page and onto the stage. Nobody was giving me that, and they weren't giving it to my friends either. So it's not like, you know, it's really, it sounds simplistic, but I don't think it's that black boys don't want to read. Like you said, give them a book that's, that they're going to be able to relate to. Give them something that's going to make them go in the back of the room Mm -hmm. and get on Google and try to search, you know, give them something that's going to connect with them. Yeah. What do you look for in a classroom? Because I've seen you do this. I've seen you walk into a space and find that kid. You know, when when the principal's been working with trying to find that kid, the teacher's been trying to find that kid, I've seen you do it in minutes. So there's some kind of Kwame Alexander X-ray vision that you have. Like, could you share that with us? My superpower. (laughs) (laughs) There's this teacher in a librarian in Singapore. His name is Scott Riley. And I was with he and his students for a week. And Scott says, uh, teach the child. The child is the curriculum. You know, teach the child, not the curriculum. Yeah. And I just, man, I when I get into a class, my first instinct is not to pull out my book and read from my book. You know, my first instinct is to make a connection with the class. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like if we make a connection, yeah. you'll read whatever I got. Yeah. You'll be, you <laughs> when I leave, you're, we're good. Yeah. You'll do what mm-hmm. you got to do. Mm-hmm. Let me let's make a connection. Yeah. How do we make connections? Exactly. We're sitting by the fireside in Ghana and we're listening to stories. And we're all being connected by this story. Through song, through call and response in church. Mm-hmm. Let's make a connection. I'm not concerned about the book. Mm-hmm. Like the book will happen. Mm-hmm. But when I walk into a class, I am trying to make a connection and I find that that happens when I, you know, talking about tips. Mm-hmm. Okay, here's one tip. Sort of put yourself out there as the teacher. Be unafraid, be unashamed, be respectful and just share your share your story. Mm-hmm. Let the students know and it's going to be hard cuz you got to put yourself out there and that's hard to do. Mm-hmm. Um it's it's really requires it's an act of bravery. But the t- I think the students will, will be a little bit more apt to connect 
if you sort of, you know, dance naked on the floor. Mm. No, and that's real. Like, you know, I've always said that kids won't take the risk that we won't take in front of them, you know, and yep. so that I put myself out there, that you put yourself out there. That means something because kids are looking. And then I'm also yeah. looking for that one or two kids mm-hmm. who I who I know can be a challenge. I'm like, okay, because I, I know I was that kid. Mm-hmm. So I want to find that kid and I want to bring that kid up with me. You know, I want to. I want to make that connection if I can get that particular. So I'm always I'm looking at, the, at a group connection, but I'm also looking at one or two kids who I feel like may need some special attention. And in many cases, man, it's black boys. Yeah, I'll go into a school, into a classroom like I was in this one school in the gym and the teacher, you know, it's maybe second and third graders. And the teacher, she uh, she had this black kid, this black boy sitting right next to her knee. And she had his hand on her shoulder. It was like it was obvious mm-hmm. that he may be the kid who could sort of get a little bit too energetic and yeah. be in the mix and cause some ruckus. That's what I assume is why yeah. she had she was sort of keeping him. Yeah. And she would talk to him every now and then or and so I made my way over there to him mm-hmm. and eventually sort of took him with me. And mm-hmm. and we did our thing. We had a blast. We interacted. Yeah. We, we 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 shared some poetry and yeah. and and at the end of the assembly, she came up to me and she was like, "We've never seen him that involved, that engaged. Thank you for what you did." And I'm like, "It's all about expectation. Yeah. I'm just trying to do for him what my grandparents and my parents did for me. What yeah. you got You got to expect a lot if you yeah. want a lot." Mm-hmm. And it's huge. It's huge. I remember um, you came to Teachers College a while back. And in the wake of your visit, I had to explain your magic. You know, people have a way of looking at what you do or what I do, and they call it magic. And I'm like, actually, this is science, you know. And what you do is you recognize that a kid needed power, and you lent him some of your power. You know, that, Mm. yeah. You know, when I think about why kids act out in classrooms, kids act out in classrooms because the teacher has kind of established themselves to be the ultimate power. You know, one of the things that Newton teaches us, if, if power is concentrated in one place, that power is going to be met with an equal and opposite force. Right. So if I'm constructing myself to be the absolute power, I'm also constructing my antithesis. You know, and one of the ways that you help kids acclimate to a classroom is by sharing power. And you do that quite organically, you know. And so just watching you do that has been like really, really powerful. I but find that I here's what's interesting, man. When That's a great way of sort of articulating it. When you share, I guess when you share your power. Mm-hmm. What's interesting is you end up with more power. Yeah. I mean, you end up with more power, yeah. you know, not in the sense of power as a negative connotation. Exactly. exactly. But empowered. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Exactly. Because ultimately the work you're doing is to offer, you know, an opportunity for students to become engaged and elect- electrified and edified through literature exactly and so if you're doing that mm-hmm. it's it empowers that work that you're doing exactly it's the parable of the loaves and the fish you know where uh, i'm going to share and this will multiply right you know in a really really big way yeah. well man it's just like great talking to you like um i got one last question yep. of course um yep. and and this question for every teacher who wants to build, you know, the next Jacqueline Woodson, the next Jason Reynolds, the next Kwame Alexander, then, you know, for every teacher that wants to, you know, try their best to build that kid. Like, what I love about you, too, is you teach writing workshops, <laughs> you know, um, 
what's your favorite writing strategy? Like when you're sitting in the corner of your, you know, your writing space, what's your go-to strategy? The, the thing that gets your pen moving across the page. Um, I would love to be able to share that with teachers. Wow. So, um, I wrote this book called the right thing. Mm -hmm. And it's a book about the writing workshop mm -hmm. that I've, I did for nine years, um, in 76 schools. And the goal of the writing workshop was to a teach students how to write a poem, mm. a publishable poem, to teach students how to present that poem mm. in a public space. And lastly, to teach students how to publish. Wow. Okay. All in one day. <laughs> I'm ears now. <laughs> <laughs> so this was a six hour workshop. And, it, and generally, we did it with 30 students in a room in a library for six hours straight. And so it be, the workshops always was a writing workshop with those objectives. And so this would be tip number one. Mm -hmm. The workshops always began with me showing what poetry is, not telling you, you should mm -hmm. like poetry mm -hmm. or here's why poetry is cool. It began with me showing that poetry is cool. So... You know, if it was a group of 11th graders, maybe it was a haiku that I just didn't even introduce myself. I just walked in and said, this is a poem that this this boy over here wrote for this girl or this girl over here wrote for this boy. It is not that I don't love you. She says, indeed, I do. I want to lasso your lips, tame them, rein them into my stable. But first, my love, you must agree to commit to a breath mint. And so at that in that 10 seconds every kid in this writing workshop is laughing and like oh snap <laughs> and they're like what's next yeah okay if it's a group of first graders maybe it's a it's a rhythmic poem ebony trap dark black and lovely brown mocha jumping double black brown night black out of sight black so black purple black blue black black blue black black and the kids are like ah oh, what's going on what's going on um it, maybe it was a read aloud mm -hmm. but it was it always began with let me bring the words from the page onto the stage and show you how poetry can be cool. Okay, so now, so that's tip number one. I've got you, mm -hmm. you're into it, okay? So what's next? So now maybe there is um, some discussion about, is there such a thing as a bad poem? Like ask this really, you know, this question that everybody is gonna have an answer to and generally the answer is gonna be uh, no with that question. Mm -hmm which is a great entree into sort of having a discussion. No, there's no such thing as a bad poem because poetry is all about feeling. Mm -hmm. It's all about your heart. And so is there such a thing as uh, bad fried chicken? And so one Sunday we're going over to Cornelius's house and we're gonna have fried chicken and mashed potatoes and mac and cheese. And we, we, the mac and cheese is, is dry and hard and the mashed potatoes are runny and you bite into the fried chicken and there's blood. Who's going back to Cornelius's house? Nobody. Nobody. The next Sunday we go over to Holly's house. Mm. And Holly's making fried chicken, mashed potatoes, and mac and cheese. She's got five cheeses. She's got Gouda, she's got Gruyere, she's got cheddar. She's got uh, mashed potatoes that are garlicky and buttery. She's got fried chicken that's you know just meat's falling off the bone and so tender. Who's going back to her house? So everybody raises their hand. And so students, I ask you, there are ingredients that go into making a good meal. Mm -hmm. The temperature has to be right. What are the ingredients that go into making a good poem so that we want to come back and enjoy your meal? I need one word answers. Mm -hmm. 
And within the next 10 minutes, every kid is raising their hand. Rhythm, feeling, originality, metaphors. Okay, so now we got 20 or 25 things that are on the board. So now let's write a definition. Based on these words, here's our definition. Poetry is an arrangement of concise words in a rhythmic manner that convey a message using figurative language and um, originality and feeling, doing all this by showing and not telling. So the kids got their definition. All right, for the next five hours and 45 minutes, this is your definition by which you're going to use. You've created it. I didn't. It's yours. So now let's talk about the different forms of poems. Let me go through that. Tip number two, the biggest thing I've found that works in these writing workshops to get kids immediately engaged in writing. And again, I only had six hours with them mm -hmm. and I need them to write a publishable poem and then publish. Let's write a group poem. So we'll write a haiku together. So all of these tips are in the book, The Right Thing. Yeah. I did it for nine years. And by the end of the workshop, we have a publishable poem. Kids have written the introduction the forward, the dedication, they've ordered a barcode, they've designed the cover, they've done all this work. Mm -hmm. And so we've created this book and two weeks later, paperback books come back from the printers. Now, one might say, well, Kwame's just created this writing workshop and the goal was to get kids to write and publish a book. No. Mm. Ultimately, the goal, Cornelius, was to get them to say yes to what's possible. Yeah. To let them know that you can do it. Yeah. To let them know that you gotta be accountable, you gotta learn, you gotta prepare and do the work to let you know that ultimately, if you are willing to say yes to your lives, then your dreams can happen. You can be who you wanna be. I'm gonna help you get the confidence. I'm gonna tr help trigger your voice. And you can go out into this world and do and be who you need to be. So I guess in a way I'm still, you know, my father was right, mm -hmm. you know? that my family, my parents, my grandparents, they did all this. And that's what I'm trying to offer to, to the world. Wow, thank you so much. I mean, you've given the world books, um, but I think more importantly, you've given kids power. And as an educator, speaking for many, many educators who listen to this podcast, I can say, you know, seeing empower kids in the world doing what they were born to do, being who they were born to be, is our greatest joy. So thank you for cultivating that. Thank you. Our thanks to both Kwame Alexander and Cornelius Minor for their time today. Kwame's newest book, The Right Thing, Kwame Alexander Engages Students in Writing Workshop, is available now. Kwame is also the forward author on Cornelius Minor's forthcoming book, We Got This, Equity, Access, and the Quest to Be Who Our Students Need Us to Be, out this fall from Heinemann. You can learn more about Kwame on KwameAlexander.com. You can also learn more about Cornelius Minor on Heinemann.com. Or you can follow both authors on Twitter, at Mr. Minor and at Kwame Alexander. Thanks for listening. <laughs>